0: Our lesson today is the importance and also the way of abiding in him. How can we do that? We must remember that it's not just an intellectual thing. The intellect cannot give us understanding. It can give us understanding about understanding. That's different. Dogmatism is understanding about understanding, but dogmatism is rooted in the soil of doubt and it fears challenge. When you have true faith, it's of the heart, and nobody can shake that faith. It's based on experience. And how do we experience God? Well, this beautiful passage from Whispers from Eternity is a clear indication of how we can accomplish that end. By loving everybody, by being even-minded, by giving more than we receive, these things are all vitally important to our spiritual growth. As we heard, as we, were, as we read, uh, as I read to you from affirmations, many people think that because God is inside and we only want to please God and all, everything outside is delusion, therefore it's delusion to try to please other people. And of course it is if you're trying to please their egos in order to be flattered by yourself. But if you try to help other people, if you try to love them and give them kindness, this is a part of understanding that God is everywhere. God is not only inside yourself. He's everywhere. This is a lesson that Sri Yukteswar taught Master in the Autobiography of a Yogi. So we must understand, first of all, that if you want to really abide in God, you must Follow certain basic rules. One is to be even minded and cheerful. Nothing should take you out of your inner center. How can you do that? By remembering that life is a pendulum. All creation was founded on the principle of Dvaita. As the ocean creates waves by rising and falling, the surface rises. And every rising wave doesn't change the level of the ocean. It has to have a corresponding trough somewhere, somehow. When I was in Hilo, Hawaii, many years ago, someone told me, before the great tsunami that came and really d- caused great devastation, the tide, the ocean was taken way out, and people just thought, oh, how wonderful. And they went out and they found all these muzzles and oysters and things. They were getting uh, these from the bed which had been exposed when all of a sudden the wave came crashing in. What goes down must come up, what what goes up must come down. And if you understand that all your successes, all your fulfillments, everything in this world, you will have to, as I was saying yesterday, you will have to experience the opposite. You finally reach the point where you understand that I'm going to remain at my own center and not let anything affect me outwardly. You will enjoy pain, a pleasure, but certainly you will also enjoy pain in the sense that it teaches you important lessons. You know, when you go to a movie and you may see terrible things happening in the movie, people being killed, people being frightened, and yet you may come out of that movie, if it's a good movie, saying, I learned a lot from that movie. Can't you do the same with life? Whenever you go through hard experiences, just see, what am I, what is the lesson in this? God never wants to punish you, but in every down there is a lesson. You know, that song of mine, I Live Without Fear, it's one of my favorite songs. And uh, it was written as a result of somebody who came to me and spent at least an hour telling me what a complete waste my life was. And uh, I didn't bother to answer him, I just listened. And when he finished, I thanked him and uh, he left. But then I wrote this song, though green summer fade and winter draw near, my Lord in your presence, I live without fear. You don't have to worry whether people hate you or praise you. You don't have to worry if things go well or go badly. If you remain steadfastly centered in your own heart, then nothing can touch you. Don't let anything affect you inwardly. If people praise you, say, well, God is the doer. If they blame you, thank them. If they insult you, thank them. If they try to hurt you, thank them. (laughs) Don't get angry or upset because you will find... That the more you would just allow everything that comes to you, what comes of itself, let it come. And uh, that means the bad things as well as the good. When we can accept everything that comes as a blessing from God, we find that all that happens is really a, it's a sign of his grace. And we think during our down periods in life, and certainly I've been through my share, But I have also learned from them. At first I suffered greatly, but then Ananda Moimar sent me a note, a a message saying, take this as your guru's grace, my dismissal from SRF. It was extremely painful to me. And I thought, grace? That's the one word I cannot accept. But I found in time that it was true, that it was my guru's grace. He was taking me out of a situation in which I could never Have served him the way he told me to serve him. He wanted me to write books. I could never have had the time to write books and I would never have had had those books printed or published. He told me to lecture. I had to worry about, as long as I was there, being reported and being told I shouldn't say this or that. I could talk freely when I was on my own according to my own inspiration. He told me to edit how could I edit anything? When there was a superior editor, they, Tara Taramato edited the autobiography and did a wonderful job, nonetheless she had a certain attitude that was a little arrogant and peremptory, and it came out in her. She said to me laughingly one time, even when he was William the Conqueror, Yogananda didn't know English. Okay, English didn't exist when William the Conqueror... <laughs> He helped to create the English language by coming to England. It was an absurd thing to say, but this is what ego can do. And uh, she said to me one time regarding his other books, like the Gita and the Bible and others, she said they don't need anything, any more books. What do they need with What do they need with more books? So instead of doing the job he had given her to do, she meddled in everybody else's job. So she was the main person who threw me out, and I don't feel any great need to be tactful about her, but <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that that uh, she did me the greatest favor she could possibly have done. So I'm grateful. Oh, none of this would have happened if it hadn't been for that. Well, I also, however, have, as I said yesterday, a, a basically very enthusiastic nature. When I I don't mean Hollywood type of enthusiasm but when I believe in something I want everyone to know it. And I remember writing Diabata many years ago and before I was, long before I was thrown out I said you can give me any job you like, you can have me cleaning toilets but I can assure you that if I do clean toilets within a few months everybody will want to clean toilets. <laughs> it's just the way I'm made and I can't even help it, so why not go with it? I would have made it the definition of service. (laughs) The important thing is that we be even-minded and at the same time, not apathetic, but cheerful. One very important cue to even-mindedness is you know when a child is swinging uh, on a swing, he uses the ropes to go farther and higher and so on. But then, if you want to stop that swing, push in the opposite direction. And so when things go well for you, it doesn't hurt to say, yeah, uh, maybe today they're going well, but they could go badly tomorrow. So don't, get, don't go overboard with, that, uh, with the glee of having it going well. You can be sure it'll go bad. If not tomorrow, then the day after. <laughs> this is the nature of life. Anytime you get overexcited about things going well, they're going to start going badly. Watch that very emotion, because it's bound to cu- cut uh, to snap back at you. And when things go badly, I remember saying to Norman one time, he was going through a very hard time with uh, various delusions, and he would come into my room where I had my desk, I used to work out of my room, And he'd sit on my bed, and it was as if a cloud had come into my room, (sighs) like this. And I tried to cheer him up one time, but I didn't use the right tactic. I said, Norm, don't feel so badly. It can't last more than 40 more years. (laughs) And I meant it. But to him, this was the worst thing I could have said. And I had to learn to tune into other people's realities. But the truth is that... uh, Nothing will last forever. And even if it's a whole lifetime, it won't last forever. So that even if you find yourself in prison with a life sentence, you just tell yourself it won't last forever. It may be hard to do because 40 years seems like a long time in terms of human consciousness. But really it's not. Think of all the lives you have lived, all the pains, all the joys. I've often thought of two novels. One written about a young man who's born on the right side of the tracks, let's say, and he has everything and when he grows up he easily gets a good job because of the influence of his father. And he rises quickly in the family for the same reason. And he meets the boss's daughter and falls in love with her and they marry. And when the boss dies he inherits his house and lives at a palace and everything is just wonderful. I suspect that by, I, by the page 10, you would close that book with boredom. But let's get that same child born on the wrong side of the tracks, in desperate poverty, let's say, and somehow, with great deal of effort and struggle, he gets a decent job, and by conscientious work, hard work, he rises, and finally meets the boss's daughter, and all the same things happen to him. And you'll read that book to the end and say, oh, what a great story. We need the pluses and minuses of life. We need the downs in order to enjoy the ups. And ultimately, we must must come to the point where neither the ups nor the downs have any effect on us. You just tell yourself, in eternity, I am always free. And the more you live like that, the more wonderfully you'll find that in fact, even the period of difficulty through which you may have seemed to be passing, passes very quickly. This, if you learn your lesson right away, and the lesson is even-mindedness, you'll find that you don't have to wait those 40 years, or those f- incarnations, or whatever it might be. You'll find that your tests vanishes as though they hadn't been. Like that time that Master, every time he saw a disciple, he would scold her and she would weep and get angry and get upset. And He'd see her again, he'd scold her again and she'd weep and get angry and upset. And finally one day he started scolding her and she took it very calmly. And he looked at her with surprise. He said, oh, you're learning. I was trying to make you more docile. And from then on she was. he never scolded her again. So as he reacted to her, as soon as she took it in the right way, you'll find that life will react that way to you when you take everything in the right way. It's really only trying to whip you into shape so you can know who you really are. None of these things is real. If, as I said, and I mean it quite seriously, if somebody insults you, thank him, because it helps you to remember that uh, you're not perfect. Therefore, to keep you humble, I'm glad to be humble, I was, I was not upset or angry with that man. It was when he was telling me what a waste my whole life was. I felt rather grateful that I know that my, my self-value doesn't depend on what I've done, who I am, what other people think of me. It depends only on my love for God. And uh, with that, people can think anything they like of what I've done. It doesn't matter one bit. Yes, of course I'm happy when people appreciate what I've done, because it means I can do more for them, whereas for this person I could do nothing. I remember one thing that he, he said. He said, the first movement of my sonata ought to have words. He had, say, he had said this years earlier. And I said, no, I don't think it'll go with words. Later I did put words to it, and I liked them very well. And at this meeting, when he was excoriating me, he said, I told you it needed words, and you, did, you told me it didn't, but you did put words in. <laughs> As if he'd written those words himself. <laughs> the absurdity of human nature can sometimes be a great cause of laughter. Don't be upset at how anything or anyone treats you. Just say, well, it's a wonderful test. It's a wonderful way of learning how to be calm, even-minded, and cheerful. Now, another way of loving, of abiding in God is to remember that love is much more important than dogma. We don't really understand things with our mind. We can understand about things, we can know reasons for them, but understanding comes from the heart. And Usha's written a beautiful book, I've been reading it, and congratulations! Really? But she points out the importance of the heart to understanding. There was a very interesting case I read about a woman who had a heart transplant. And uh, you're not supposed to know who the person was who get transplanted, gave you your heart. But she found certain things were happening to her that she'd never had before. She suddenly felt a desire for chicken. She'd never had such a desire before. And for restless music and different things that were totally different from anything she'd ever imagined. And she did check out and find out at last who this person was. It was an 18-year-old man who had been very restless, loved chicken, and many things that she had taken on because she had his heart. The heart, actually, that seems like an almost incredible thing because it seems like the heart is only an organ that pumps blood. But it's much more than that. Everybody in the world knows that it's here he suffers when he feels, suffers heartbreak. I've never known a lonely swain, a heartbroken swain, to say my knee feels broken. <laughs> but many say that they feel it in their heart because you know that this is where you feel love. You don't feel it here, you feel it here. And you don't understand anything until you can feel it. You can know mentally all about it, but it's the heart's feelings. That's why it says in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras that the definition of yoga is yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Chitta is the feeling in the heart. And when you can calm those vrittis, those whirlpools of feeling in the heart, then you have calmness, you have yoga. The calmness of the heart, much more than of the mind. Vivekananda translated that as calming the waves of mind stuff. That isn't the, st- it isn't the mind. It's there are three, four aspects of mind. Mun, buddhi, ahankar, Chitta. Mun is the receiving mind. What, it's, Sri Yukteswar explained it this way, it's like having a mirror and you see a horse in that mirror, and you say, oh, that's a horse. First of all, you see it, you don't know what it is, you see the image, that's the mind. Then the intellect comes in and says, oh, that's a horse. Still doesn't mean anything. You can have uh, that much understanding and not be at all caught in delusion. Then comes the, the further thought, oh, that's my horse. Even that needn't be delusion. A Ahankar. Uh, I'll tell you that story later. But then the heart comes in and say oh that's i'm how happy i am to see my horse that's where delusion begins with the feeling mine not mine master one time when he was when he wanted to start Ranchi school he went to the maharaja of Kashim bazar and uh, he was a young man and the maharaja decided he wanted to test his scriptural knowledge before he would uh, sponsor a spiritual school so he asked a group of pundits to come in and test his spri- scriptural knowledge. And Master said they were all assembled there for, as if for a spiritual bullfight. And he said, he said, let's not work on quotes from scripture. That doesn't indicate knowledge or wisdom. Hey, let's take something that I know is not in any scripture. The scriptures tell us that the four aspects of mind have their physical counterpart. Mon, buddhi hankar, chitta. Can you tell me where in the body those qualities of mind, aspects of mind are centered? Well, they didn't know because it wasn't anything they could quote. So he said, moon is centered here. Buddha, buddhi is centered in the point between the eyebrows. That's when you think deeply. You tend to knit your eyebrows. When somebody asks you a question, you knit your eyebrows. When you, uh, he said, Ahankar, ego, is centered in the medulla oblongata. And uh, that is where the ego is centered. Whenever somebody's pre- pleased with something you've said that flatters you, eh, eh, he'll go, mm. <laughs> The movement will center from here. When somebody's arrogant. You notice the tension back here pulls his head back. And it's a universal thing. You don't have to say, well, I'm a Buddhist and I don't believe these things. If you're a human being, this will happen. In fact, if you're not a human being. <laughs> Yogananda talked about one time there was a dog that was uh, owned by a member, by, by not a member, uh, a neighbor uh, of his retreat in 29 Palms. And this dog, Bojo, his name was, would come over when we were having lunch outside. And Master said, look at him. He's so concentrated on the food we're eating, his brow is furrowed. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I said, chitta is centered in the heart. Now if you can calm the waves of chitta by accepting whatever comes with good will, without getting excited without, without saying, I want this or I want that. And another interesting thing is Vivekananda described them as waves. Chitta is not mind stuff, it's that this aspect of mind, the heart's feelings. But the, he also got the vritti wrong because vritti really means whirlpool or eddy, and of uh, eddy draws everything to a center. So every time you have a desire or a like or a dislike, it st- creates a sort of whirlpool around your ego, and it's one more cause for for being trapped. Well, the way to get out of that ego, out of those eddies of 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 uh, delusion and of attachment and likes and dislikes is to watch a river. If the flow is weak, you'll find little eddies going along the edges. But once the flow becomes strong, it dissolves all those eddies. And the way to really find your freedom is to have such a flow of divine love that nothing will be able to draw energy to itself. It carries everything along with it. Life without divine love is hardly worth living. And yet you see so many dry faces in the world. So few people understand even human love. They only think in terms of themselves and what I can get. The more you can give of yourself, the more you understand that the source of all love is just one, which is God. That all love is just a reflection of his infinite love, the more you will find that you can abide in him. And the goal of life is to learn to live in his consciousness. When you love God, and I say this as one who came to the path very dry. I had reached the point in my life where I found that by being intellectual, I wasn't getting what I wanted. My life was dry. And I remembered my childhood and how happy I had been as a child and I thought what's wrong with me and I when I met my master he urged me to develop devotion but how sweet it was when I finally came to understand that and I remember also something that happened during that time because I had spent a lot of time chanting and practicing devotion and one time the, he was with a group of monks down in Encinitas and I was up at Mount Washington and he said, look how I have changed, Walter. And I realized it was his grace that had done it, even though my own efforts were necessary to open myself to his grace. But remember, you don't have to change yourself. You have to make the effort to open yourself. He will do the rest. His grace is always there. He's always looking for open... Openings so that he can come in and bless you. To abide in him is above all to open your heart to him and to realize that you are his child and that he is your mother, your father, your dearest friend, your beloved. When you can live in that consciousness, you will find that everything you ever looked for in life is right there with you. It's not not something you have to work for. In this world, we have to work so hard to achieve even a little bit of success. How much hard work it took to create Ananda. It didn't just spring full-blown from the earth. It took much hard work on my part and on the part of many other people. But God does not take hard work. He's the opposite of education. In education, you add things. You learn. In seeking God, you unlearn. You unlearn this delusion that you're a man or a woman, that you're an American or an Indian or Italian, that you're rich or poor, that you're intelligent or stupid or whatever it might be. You're none of these things. You're the ever-perfect spirit. And the wonderful thing is, Master used the quote often, all of Krishna's soldiers were like Krishna. And I said yesterday that each person, when he finds God, is uniquely himself. And yet, there is something that comes through of the Guru in every disciple. And that is not a personality thing. It's that particular ray of grace that came into him from the Guru, from God, through the Guru. The Guru is essential on the path. Only those who have found God who didn't have Gurus were people who were very highly evolved already. But for the average person, without the Guru, you can't get there. Therefore, be in tune with the Guru. Be Jesus, as it says in the Bible, as many as received him. And when he spoke, Abide in me, he meant that in two ways. In the abstract way, usually when he has said, I, he meant the infinite Christ. That Christ which is in every atom of creation. But he also meant sometimes his own self. For example, when someone said to him, good man, good master, and he said, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's gone. He wouldn't accept that praise from anyone for his own self. But when he said, abide in me, he meant be in tune with my spirit. I remember a a disciple of Master, Leo Cox, used to take many pictures of Master, and he practically papered his wall in his room with these pictures. And Master said to him one time, why do you take pictures of this bag of bones and flesh? Get to know me in meditation if you want to know who I really am. To abide in Master means to take his name, to feel his presence on think of him all the time. And uh, God takes so many forms, but it's good also to think of an instrument as a channel through which God comes to you. Through that love of that instrument, you will become free. You can't get out of it by yourself. To abide in him means he will come and he will fill your heart. It's like this: Grace is like the sunlight on the side of a building. If the curtains in a bedroom are closed shut, the sunlight won't be able to come in. You don't bring the sunlight in. The sunlight is there shining. Grace is there shining. But when you open the curtains, then that sunlight can come in. When you open the curtains of your heart and of your mind, then grace can come in. And it is that grace which will change you. I thought that I was changing myself, but it was my guru who was changing me. It was grace that was changing me. Remember, you can't lift yourself by your own bootstraps. Only God can do that for you. What you must do is abide in him and be open to him at all times. And then ask him, God, what do you want me to do in this? It's a very simple little thing. Ask him constantly. He doesn't, he's, doesn't, he's not interested in important questions. Ask him, what ingredient shall I put in this soup to make it better? He doesn't mind that. He doesn't mind if you're even scolding him. The one thing he doesn't want is for you to ignore him. But if you make a mistake, Don't say, oh, I hope you didn't see that. (laughs) He saw it. He did it through you. And it would help if you said, God, you did this through me. It's your fault, if you want to put it that way. It doesn't seem very respectful or uh, reverential, but it becomes that, because if you really feel that God even sinned through you, then next time you'll be less likely to sin. Isn't that so? Don't hide from him. He will act through you. And the more he's able to get through you, the more you will find yourself acting in the right way. Because you'll find you are happier and you feel more of his presence when you are kind and loving and forgiving and less of it when you are scolding or angry or unforgiving. So give everything that you are, every thought to God. Think of God in the second person. Don't think he or she. Think you. Think you. Don't even use the word thee, although thee is supposed to be much more intimate and familiar, and it grammatically is. In actual usage, it sounds formal. And so use the word you. Talk to God as you, and tell him every time, every thought you have. Try to share that with him. And when you go out, it's a wonderful thing to take a walk, and to feel as you walk that it's his power working through you, And when you hear a dog barking, ask him, what are you trying to say to me through that? The dog is barking on its own. He's not thinking of you. But you know God can give you messages through everything if you listen. You'll be amazed at how many little signs he will give you if you just love him. So love is the only thing that matters. And lest that love become something personal, it should be bliss, love bliss above all. Because in that bliss, you will find freedom. Joy to you.